Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Layla Schultz-Ames. As we continue through Black History Month, I want to touch on a topic that's slightly controversial, and that's the topic of reparations. Stay tuned. Okay, let's get into it. Let's talk about reparations. So first things first, what is reparations and why do Black people want it anyways? So reparations is essentially payment for any egregious injustices that have been committed in the past. And this is actually something that's not foreign to the U.S. in general. Native Americans have received land and billions of dollars for various benefits and programs for obviously being forcibly exiled from their native land. Japanese Americans also received about $1.5 billion, uh, which was paid out to those who were interned during World War II and obviously very well deserved. Additionally, the United States, uh, with the Marshall Plan, helped ensure that Jews received reparations for the Holocaust, including making various investments over time. And in 1952, West Germany agreed to pay 3.45 billion marks to Holocaust survivors. So essentially now, as, as we are in 2023 and we're kind of looking back in history, Black Americans are basically the only group that has not received reparations for state-sanctioned racial discrimination, where uh, you know slavery afforded a lot of white people the ability to accrue wealth. It also took away a lot of, obviously, took away a lot of opportunities for African Americans. And I think it goes without saying, too, that slavery was obviously particularly brutal. We know that about 15% of the enslaved ships from Western Africa died during transport. That is, those who were on the ships, uh, about 15% did not make it. And those who did actually arrive to the U.S. were regularly beaten and lynched for just small things. Uh, We know slavery disrupted families because one in three marriages were split up. Uh, They say about one in five children were separated from their parents. So the case for reparations can be made on a lot of levels, economic, social, and moral. The United States actually has had multiple opportunities to atone for slavery and really missed the chance to make things right for uh, African Americans and, and descendants of, of slavery. So let's talk about a couple missed opportunities here. The first one was obviously the famous 40 acres and a mule. So this was something that really was supposed to help right after the Civil War. Union leaders, including General William Sherman, concluded that each Black family should receive about 40 acres. Sherman actually signed the Field Order 15, which was supposed to allocate 400,000 acres of confiscated Confederate land to Black families. Additionally, families were supposed to receive mules that were left over from the war, so that's where the whole 40 acres and a mule idea came up. What people don't realize is that after President Abraham Lincoln's assassination in April of 1865, President Andrew Johnson, who was very pro-Southern and very pro-Confederacy, actually reversed Field Order 15 and returned land back to former slave owners. Instead of giving Blacks the means to support themselves, the federal government actually empowered former slave owners. For example, in in Washington, D.C., slave owners were actually paid reparations for lost property because, remember, at that time, slaves were considered property. 
This practice was also common in nearby states. So here we had thousands of former slaves with no job, no education, and they no longer had the 40 acres and a mule that they were promised. Because of that, many Black Americans with limited work options ended up returning to the lands that they were slaves, and they worked as sharecroppers for the very slave owners to whom they had once uh, had to call master. So slave owners not only made money off of the enslavement of Black Americans, but then they made money multiple times over because they were given back the land and they essentially were able to re-enslave Black people, forcing them to work on the land and paying them peanuts. So this is obviously right off the bat, right after the Civil War, and this is something that was a a huge missed opportunity. But there were others. We had the New Deal. So in the 1930s, the United States was obviously reeling from the 1929 stock market crash and was right in the middle of the Great Depression. President Franklin Roosevelt, he implemented a series of policies as part of his New Deal legislation, and it was estimated to have cost about 50 billion then. So that's, you know, obviously nowadays we're looking at that would have cost uh, somewhere in the, in the trillions. Two particular policies of the New Deal fell short in really addressing America's racial wrongs. That was the GI Bill and Social Security. Though white and black Americans fought in World War II, it's no secret that when blacks came back from the war, they were still treated as second-class citizens. And part of this is that black veterans could not redeem their post-war benefits the way their white peers could. While the GI Bill was mandated federally, it was actually implemented locally. So the presence of a lot of racial housing issues and redlining among local uh, municipalities, as well as uh, racist mayors and governors, really prohibited blacks from utilizing federal benefits. White soldiers were awarded the opportunity to build wealth by sending themselves and their children to college and also by obtaining housing and small business grants. But most Black people, most Black veterans that returned from the war, they were unable to ever do this and many of them died in poverty. Regarding Social Security, two key professions that would have improved equity in the, in the United States were excluded from the legislation. That's domestic and farm workers. So these admissions omissions effectively excluded 60% of Blacks across the U.S. and 75% in Southern states who worked in these occupations. Roosevelt bargained these provisions and legislations basically on on the backs of of Black veterans and workers in order to propel mostly white Americans out of the Great Depression. He essentially realized that he wasn't going to be able to get this legislation, and he felt that it was the best thing to do to kind of focus on the fact that, well, we have the Great Depression, we need to get out of it, so there's certain things that we're just going to have to wait until later. Unfortunately, these things were never brought up again and they were never readdressed, so hence the reason why the majority of 
again, black workers who were working those jobs from farming and, and domestic work, they were never really able to take advantage of the social security that was supposed to be given to all Americans. So these are just two examples in, in addition to obviously government sanctioned discrimination with the 1862 Homestead Act, uh, redlining, convict leasing, a bunch of things that uh, I've talked about in previous episodes as well as, as things that uh, continued well into the 20th century. Uh, so a lot of these things really kept black people from the ability to gain wealth at similar rates as white people. Essentially, many black people felt and feel that they deserve reparations as they think they never really got a fair deal. They feel as if slavery still continued and the impact of slavery actually is still continuing today. What is actually being done right now about reparations? And is there any progress or momentum in the United States making some type of reparation law or bill? Well, many people are frustrated at how slow Congress is moving when it comes to passing any type of bill uh, related to reparations. Uh, There have been various bills brought forth over the last three decades, but nothing has actually been passed. And so a lot of states Uh, particularly California, which I'll talk about a little bit later, are sort of taking matters into their own hands. But let's just fast forward to the future and let's say we do actually pass a bill uh, that is about reparations and sort of looking at how we can how we can compensate uh, African-Americans. What would that look like exactly? What are what are the best ways to actually hand out reparations and also who would get this? Well, There's a few possibilities. Uh, One is direct cash payments, which to be honest, I'm not a big fan of. I think handing out money is not really going to be the best way to solve things. And I think you also have to look at, okay, well, what where is that money going to go what would that cash payment be how much would it be what is that going to look like so that's one option that's been talked about but for me personally it's one that i think is not really the most uh influential in terms of uh how is that going to help future generations i don't think it will and i also think that with cash payments it's sort of not uh really going to be the most long-term lasting effect. So there's a couple options that are are being talked about. So one is college tuition uh, to four-year or two-year colleges and universities for descendants of enslaved Black Americans. So essentially, if this were to happen, people uh, would use the tuition. They would be given uh, money directly for tuition to obtain a bachelor's degree or associate's degree or even a technical vocational uh, type degree. And the tuition would be available for public or private universities. Um, Certainly considering the racial gap in the ability to obtain degrees at private schools, this part of the package would really help to reduce a lot of racial disparities by affording more social network access and opportunity structure. So I think you know, obviously as an educator, I think that's one that would be very positive. And I think that's something that would have a lasting effect on generations because education is a really 
solid stepping stone into helping families of you know color or, or whoever really uh, raise the bar in terms of opportunities for themselves and their children. Another option that was talked about is student loan forgiveness for descendants of enslaved Black Americans. So obviously student loan debt continues to be a significant barrier to wealth creation for Black college graduates. Among 25 to 55 year olds, about 40% of Blacks compared to 30% of whites have student loan debt. Blacks also have nearly $45,000 of student loan debt compared to about $30,000 for whites. And based on recent studies and research I, I did for this program, it says that Blacks are more likely to be allocated unsubsidized loans. Uh, so, you know, additionally, graduates of historically Black colleges and universities um, compared to predominantly white institutions are more likely to receive subprime loans with higher interest rates. So this just adds additional uh, additional burden for, for people of color. Uh, another idea is down payment grants and housing uh, grants for descendants of enslaved Black Americans. So these down payment grants would provide Black Americans with some some type of equity in their, their homes, they would receive uh, mortgage insurance loans and also housing revitalization, revitalization grants would, would really help Black Americans to refurbish existing homes and neighborhoods that maybe have been neglected uh, due to lack of government or just corporate investments, uh, especially in predominantly Black communities. So something along the lines of helping them to to get homes because obviously we know from redlining uh, that's that has been has been an issue so there's been a lot of different uh talks uh proposals for reparation programs have been looked at by a variety of advocacy groups in the recent decades uh, the National African American Reparations Commission, for example, they have a 10-point reparations plan. It calls for a national apology for slavery and subsequent discrimination. It also looks at, you know, the idea of, uh, again, affordable housing, educational programs, the preservation of Black monuments and sacred sites. Um, there's really a lot into it. Uh, there's also been additional proposals. There's one that was proposed by Andre Pierre and Rishon Ray uh, as part of the Brookings Institution that looked at, you know, specifically who is going to to get reparations. So the idea would be descendants with at least one ancestor enslaved in the U.S. Uh, and their idea there would be you know, direct fin financial payments with plans for free college tuition, uh, grants again for down payments and housing. Uh, so a lot of different things. Also additional grants for Black-owned businesses. So there's a lot of different ideas being floated around, but a lot of them are essentially around how can we boost the Black community and how can we uh, kind of get to the, this equal playing field? How can we reach that, that equity? So obviously a big question that always comes up with this whenever there's talk of reparations is how do we pay for it? Well, generally advocates for reparations say that three different groups should pay for it. Federal and state governments, which obviously supported and protected the institution of slavery, private businesses that financially benefit from it, and rich families that owe a portion of their wealth to slavery. 
obviously it goes without saying that this idea isn't necessarily very popular with the American public. A 2020 poll from the Washington Post and ABC News found that 63% of Americans don't think the U.S. should pay reparations to the descendants of slavery. Unsurprisingly, there is a racial divide to this. So the Post ABC News poll found that while 82% of Black Americans support reparations, 75% of white Americans don't. So there's a lot of, there's a lot that we need to sort of work on. And there's a lot of, uh, I think, conversations that still need to be had. And I think obviously no plan is going to be perfect and nothing is going to satisfy everybody. But there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, conversations again that still still need to be had so what are the arguments against reparation and certainly there are many you know I I myself personally I I have to say that I was never a huge huge fan of a lot of the ideas that were sort of put out for reparations right Um, again a lot of it was based on the idea of cash payments and I was not a fan of that Certainly now, you know, with different studies and and sort of, you know, these committees looking at different ways to do it, I'm more on board with the idea of something, again, along the lines of tuition or, you know, grants for small businesses, Black-owned businesses, or housing, uh, some type of, you know, down payment for housing. That I'm I'm definitely more on board with versus just handing out cash. Uh, But there's, you know, as I said, there are many people that are against it. Um, Opponents of reparations argue that all the slaves are dead, that no white people living today own slaves, or that all the immigrants that have come to America since the Civil War don't have anything to do with slavery. Also, they make the point, too, that not all black people living in America today are descendants of slaves. You know, former President Barack Obama, for example, uh, his his ancestors were not slaves. Uh, A couple years ago, we had the lovely Senator Mitch McConnell say that he opposed the idea, basically arguing yet that none of us currently living are responsible for slavery. And other people point out that slavery makes it almost impossible for most African Americans to trace their lineage earlier than the Civil War. So it might be difficult to prove exactly who came, who is a descendant of enslaved people and who's not. Uh, writer David Frum, who wrote this long article in 2014, it was an opinion piece for The Atlantic, called The Impossibility of Reparations. He basically talks about or warns that any reparations program would eventually be expanded to other groups, like Native Americans, and he feared that reparations could create their own brand of inequality. Of course, that's not incorrect you know there's always going to be issues there's going to be even with you know the Native American tuition uh, for me growing up in Maine uh, all people who were I believe one at least one eighth Native American were able to go to Maine state uh, public universities and colleges for free and certainly there are people that heard about this knew about this I knew I knew several girls uh, who qualified for this and I knew other people that said hey that's not fair how dare they get free education how dare they do this so of course yes there's going to be it is going to create a, a certain level of animosity but so so be it you know there's there's definitely uh, some people that are, are always going to have a problem with with things no matter what 
you know, of course, again, there are valid arguments and, and people do say, hey, slavery was so long ago or, hey, my family didn't own slaves. But the key to understanding this is that there's a lot of unpaid labor. There's millions and millions of dollars of unpaid labor. And the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow laws, discrimination in mortgage lending, race-based system of mass incarceration, it's created uncompensated wealth for individuals and white society as a whole. Immigrants with European heritage uh, directly and, and indirectly did actually benefit from the system of white supremacy. And, you know, the past is very much present today when we look at it, that, you know, on average, it's, it's just true that, that people of color, black people are, are not at the same wealth level as white Americans. And there's, there's no way to really argue against that. I think obviously the big conversation is not if reparations if, is needed, it's how we're going to do, go about with reparations. And I think that's an ongoing conversation that's definitely worth having. segment which is ask a black friend okay so i had a conversation with one of my good friends recently uh after watching the netflix movie you people so if you haven't seen it it's you know it has some funny bits some not so funny bits but you know overall if you're looking for something to watch on a friday night then go on over to netflix and watch it basically it's about uh, a couple in la jonah hill who plays well a jewish white dude uh and uh, he ends up falling in love and eventually becoming engaged to a black girl. And the movie kind of looks at their how their family deals with the relationship as well as navigating certain issues and challenges in a racially challenging society. <laughs> so um, in talking with my friend who had also seen it, we kind of were, were talking about the scene, and again, I don't want to give too much, but uh, Jonah Hill's mom sort of plays this very uh, woke, or she thinks she's she's a super woke white woman, and she wants to go out of her way to prove to her future daughter-in-law that she is not racist at all and loves black people. And so in speaking with, with one of my, my, my good friends, uh, we were kind of having the conversation of like, why is it that white people often feel uncomfortable in the presence of people of color, whether or not they're, you know, woke or liberal or conservative or whatever. What is it that makes them feel uncomfortable? And coincidentally, what is it that, why is it that we as, as black people or people of color, why do we make white people feel uncomfortable? And, you know, this is obviously everything on my podcast is my opinion and my idea. Uh, so I don't claim to be an expert on any of this, but as somebody that has grown up in an in, in all-white space and spent the majority of my, my 34 years in all-white spaces, I think what it comes down to is that, you know, the majority of white people are not used to having to really interact. I mean, interact, not just 
go to the grocery store and see a black people a black person or get on you know the metro that's that's being operated by a black person or or anything like that i mean really interact in a social level with people of color and this is not their fault right this has to do again with the institutions that are racist you know whether it's from housing to education healthcare, criminal justice, what have you, these institutions are in place so that we do have a very segregated society so that the majority of white people, whether or not they're affluent or or middle class or poor, they don't necessarily have to interact or be in the same neighborhoods, in the same workspaces, in the same just social, uh, social areas as people of color. And so because of this, they don't really have a lot of opportunities or chances to interact with Black people. You know, I, I often bring up the the Chris Rock joke, right? I love Chris Rock. I think he's really funny. And in one of his stand-ups years ago, he's he said, you know, I have... I have friends of all different religions, races, sexual orientations, everything. And coincidentally, all my white friends, they have one black friend. And, you know, it, it's it's funny, but it's something like I can definitely relate to, too, right? Because for me, like, I have friends from, from different areas and different countries and, you know, different situations, uh, different ethnicities, etc. cetera. Uh, but the majority of my, my white friends have, well one black friend right and again this isn't this isn't anything on them this is not their fault it's it's the society in which they grew up in and, and continue to live in so to that point the reason i think that some white people are so uncomfortable is because they want to when they interact with a black person an actual face-to-face social interaction they want to prove to themselves and also to the person of color that they're not racist that they are open-minded liberal and uh, welcoming to people of different colors so there's nothing inherently wrong with that right like it's it's good it's cool to not be racist but sometimes it comes across as being as as we see in this movie you people with with jonah hill's mom right it comes across as going too overboard right and the irony is that in trying to prove that it it makes you sort of look strange and i've had you know so many (laughs) weird and wacky conversations with people uh over you know over the last three plus decades that uh that would just be a whole podcast in itself but you know I've heard a variety of of things you know one of the popular things that I hear uh, when I meet you know certain certain type of like I would say older middle class white liberals is they want to immediately bring up the fact that they know a black person and then they immediately want to see if you know them so you know they say like oh yeah my florist who's black uh or they say you know yeah the other day I was I was playing golf with my next door neighbor's cousin's best friend's sister she happened to be black do you know her you know stuff like that because they want to show that they are are cool and they're they're okay you know they're kind of like the safe white people uh or they kind of come in with these these assumptions you know of like oh well it you know it was it hard for you you know growing up in 
in inner city, you know, New York, is it hard growing up in the Bronx, you know, it's nice that you've been able to, to get out and really, you know, you're serving as a role model and how for, for young black, you know, brown people and, you know, stuff like that, where it's like, okay, you're making these assumptions and you're trying to, to show that you're interested, you know, in black issues or whatever, but by making assumptions, you sort of, well, just make yourself look foolish so I I think that you know in terms of okay well what's the solution I think the solution is that people need to look at each other as people you need to come together and have actual interaction with each other and try to connect you know it's like if people come in and they want to say, oh, I'm, I want to prove to you that I'm I'm so woke or that I'm so, you know, liberal and open-minded or, you know, another one I've I've heard, <laughs> no joke, I, I've heard is people say, oh, yeah, I voted for Obama twice. You know, in fact, I would have voted for him a third time. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's important for people to just try and make real, genuine connections with people instead of going overboard and trying to show that they're not something you know because ultimately at the end at the end of the day you know if you if you meet me and you have a conversation with you okay maybe we vibe maybe we don't right it's not necessary because i'm black you're white or whatever but if you actually take the time to get to know people right for who they are and i mean really who they are right you might find that yeah we actually do have a lot in common you know like if somebody takes the time to to talk to me or get to know me, right, they're going to find out, like, okay, I, I'm someone that I like to have a good time. I love traveling. I like to write. I love cooking. I love going to, to vegan restaurants. I love, you know, sports and, and spending time with my friends. So, you know, maybe that fits for you. Maybe that doesn't fit. But that's an important thing that I think people need to to realize instead of kind of, like, going into a situation with people that are a different ethnicity or even just a different, you know, sexual orientation or what have you, and sort of trying to be like, oh, let me, let me show you who I am or who I'm not. It's like, no, just, you know, come in and just be yourself, you know? And again, maybe, maybe we vibe, maybe we don't vibe, but it's an important thing to, to kind of think about and keep a, keep an open mind. Okay, to end today's episode, I have a quote from Frederick Douglass. He said, quote, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe, end quote. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next time.